0: Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. Well, good morning. Oh, don't worry. I got it, Scott. No, we'll our- I, you, oh, you got it? Look at you. Round of applause for Scott, everyone, and the whole praise team. Well, good morning. I'm, I'm glad to be here with you once again as we continue our study in the book of Matthew or the gospel of Matthew. Um, we're going to be in this book for quite a while, so I encourage you to go ahead and read on your own, follow along. You're even, watch this, check this out, you can even go ahead of us. I know. It's crazy, but like you can get ahead, you can read ahead, but here's why. I've had a couple of people already ask me some questions about some upcoming chapters, and I thought, hey, that's pretty nifty, so you know where I'm going through the book of Matthew, and so if you have some questions or some things that you want to kind of help understand a bit better, go ahead and send them to me, and when I get to that section of scripture, to have me some ideas to kind of work through and some things I can talk about (coughs) that help us understand all a little bit better. So... Go ahead, read ahead, send in the questions if you have them. Um, The first week we handed out this nifty chart, if you were here and you remember, um, this gives us kind of an overview. It's by the Bible Project people. Um, Gives us an overview about where we're going in in the book of Matthew and things to look for. And today we're kind of rounding out and finishing, if we can go to that next slide, we're rounding out and finishing this section right here. Where chapters one through three, Matthew really leans in and connects Jesus to the Old Testament. And we'll see a bit of this today, too, about Jesus, how he's this greater Moses figure. And last week we saw kind of where we ended in chapter two. We saw the ultimate like selfishness. We we saw what that looks like. Where King Herod believed in the scriptures, believed what it prophesied about the Messiah but somehow thought that he could, well, put an end to it. He thought he could take out the future king, and he wanted to protect what he wanted, so he sent his soldiers to kill the babies, right? Like, it's super sad where we saw that, but we saw at the end that when Herod had this plan to kind of stomp out this, the birth of this king, we saw that God warned Joseph and Mary to go to Egypt for a bit, right? They had to go live in Egypt, outside of their homeland, be these foreigners living there. And then after that ended, after Herod died, he sent them back to Nazareth. And so we saw kind of how the strange event fulfills what was foretold in the Old Testament about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem because of um, the census. But he was called out of Egypt where he had to go and run for his life but was raised in Nazareth, which is where he was raised. So we saw that strange event was actually foretold in this thing that seems so confusing. Matthew kind of puts it together for us like, hey, here's all that actually happened. Today, we're going to jump a few decades later to when Jesus is about 30 years old. I'm not doing that. Matthew's doing that. So when we see the end of chapter 2 to chapter 3, we got about 25 years, something like that, in between that, where Matthew's like, hey, we don't need to get into the details of all that. Let's just get to the fulfillment of what God's doing, what we see in the Old Testament, what we see Jesus fulfilling right here and right now for his time period. So let's just jump right in. we got a lot to work through today. Matthew 3, verse 1 says this. It says, in those days, which is just the time period he's announcing, hey, we're moving on. Something else is going on. He says, in those days, John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, that's how they would have understood it because he, guess what he did? Oh, man, you know your Bible. He baptized people. Check that out. It's pretty easy, right? Yeah, he's Jesus's cousin or something like that. He, too, is a miracle child that we learn about in Luke. And like you said, he is called the Baptist because he baptized people. Just like Jesus is called uh, Jesus Christ because Christ means Messiah. He's the anointed one. So these aren't just last names. These are who they are, what they're doing. But something is very different Uh, about John and about what he's doing from the rest of the religious leaders. He is calling people to repentance, right? That is his message, repent and turn to God. He's out in the wilderness doing his thing. And repentance means, if you didn't know, it's about changing direction. It's you going one way and repentance is you turning around going a different way. And John's call to repentance to the people wasn't just to turn to go a different way, it was turning back to God. Like, They're heading off track. They're going the wrong direction. Confess it, repent, turn around, and now come back to God. And why this needs to stand out to us, this is very important for our time this morning. Why this is very important to us is because he is telling very religious people to repent. Very religious people to repent. He is calling back the people of God. The Jewish people who were saying, hey, our whole nation is because of God, they went to church, they did their traditions, they went to the temple. I mean, folks, they made sacrifices. When was the last time you did that? Like a real one. They sacrificed lambs, goats, things like that. Like they were extremely religious, and he's calling them to turn, to come back to God because this kingdom of heaven, and this is a big deal, this kingdom of heaven is near or is now. Like God is doing something. You see this idea, the kingdom of heaven, this is Matthew's main theme. This is the thing you're gonna see over and over again. He talks about it 33 times. If there's a kingdom, what, is, what does that mean? Well, how about this? If there's a kingdom, that there's mean, excuse me, that means there's a what? King. Who's the king? Jesus. All right, you are getting like the main point of Matthew right there. This is the king who's come to establish his kingdom. Kingdom, right? Like that's what Matthew wants to let us know about. Now, this idea of the kingdom of God is the way Matthew likes to talk about it. Mark and Luke like to talk about the kingdom of God. And what I always found really strange was that John never talked about it. John always talked about eternal life. And it was odd to me. It's like, well, these guys are talking about a kingdom. I don't even know what that means because what is a kingdom? And then John's talking about eternal life. I'm like, well, I like John. He's telling me how to get to heaven one day. It's it's pretty great. What I didn't know when I eventually found out is kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, eternal life are all talking about the same thing. They're just talking about them in different ways. But it's all about Jesus being the king. See, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, it simply means the kingship or the reign of God. It's just specifically talking about God reigning, God doing something. God is in charge. And so all of them, if you read any of the Gospels, eternal life, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, same idea. Jesus is king, and he's reigning through Jesus. That's the idea, Emmanuel, God with us. And so John's message is simple. Repent of your sins, turn to God, because God's reign is now upon us. God's reign is here with us. And when we learn about the kingdom of God, maybe you've heard this before, it has an immediate context and a future context. It can be super confusing, but we'll work through it. The kingdom usually talks about this already, but not yet. Maybe you've heard that before, already, but not yet. Like something's happening right now, but it's not going to be fully realized until later. So the kingdom of God is upon us. Jesus has come. It's started, it's inaugurated, and it'll finally be consummated and fulfilled when judgment comes at the end so there's always this immediate now you need to do something because of this future judgment that's coming the already but not yet and so John's talking about that repent for your sins God's doing something big the kingdom of God verse 3 he says this The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, excuse me, this is Matthew talking about John. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, his voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. And so now Matthew once again points us to Isaiah 40 verse 3 and shows us this is another fulfillment of prophecy that this is the one that they foretold that was gonna come and get people ready for the king. So John is going before the king. He's making announcements. Back then, if a king was coming to town, they'd make sure the road was cleared. They'd make sure there were no branches in. Kind of like today, if the president's going to an area, secret service is all over it. Like, that's John. He's coming in. He's saying, hey, the king is coming. God's getting ready to do something. And in our context, it's like, why would God do that? But remember, we see this all throughout the scriptures where a prophet comes into town. It says, listen, God's about to move, and y'all better move too. God's about to do something, and you better get on board with it. And sometimes it's doom and gloom if they don't listen, and the majority of the time, do they listen to the prophets? Nope. And they get what's coming. So John is warning them, hey, God's about to do something. Verse 4 talks to us about what he looks like. It says, John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist. Check this out, it's disgusting. For food he ate locusts and wild honey. So this guy's in the wilderness preaching, repent and turn to God, and he's dressed like this. And this is not normal clothes. They're telling us this guy is a character. He's dressed like a wilderness mountain man. Not a suit and tie. Not the latest and greatest clothes. He's wearing the clothes as somebody who's surviving and living in the wilderness. You see, Camel's hair was sewn into dark, thick cloth that was able to withstand the harsh elements. And he's describing John's clothing because it's the same clothing that Elijah had in the Old Testament. It was the clothes for poor people, clearly distinguishing himself from the upper religious class. And so John, John is from the priestly line. This John the Baptizer, he's from the priestly line. He could have a nice job in the temple, he could get 401k, he could get benefits, stock options, insurance. I mean, he could have it all because he is from that class. But instead of luxury, he's eating grass, hoppers, and honey living in the woods. And some of y'all from Oregon County are like, amen, I like this dude. He is my type of guy. We're like, I get this guy. But it is, it's a picture. This is a picture of a wilderness man with grasshoppers in his teeth, honey dripping for his lips, burly beard, living in the desert. And his message is, repent. All of you who are living in luxury, all of you who think you're doing the right things, turn back to God. And this is where we got to be careful because it sounds like one of those homeless men on the street corner screaming at everybody, doesn't it? Sometimes you just got to be careful who you're judging. You never know who it might be because he is yelling at people to change the way they're going. This guy is super weird. That's the reason all four gospel writers mention him. They all describe what he looks like, but they don't talk about what Jesus looks like or wears or eats, but they talk about him because it's so strange. This is not normal, but John's whole ministry is about rejecting the religious and political establishment of the day. He intentionally wore the wrong stuff, lived in the wrong places, ate the nastiest stuff, but yet we see Jesus say, no one is greater than this man. What I'm trying to say is, folks, no church would ever hire this guy, but he is from God, And according to the Son of God, the greatest man to ever live. We need to think about that. We need to think about what greatness means when it comes to who God uses and what he is doing. Verse 5 says, People from Jerusalem and from all over Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And usually we just gloss over this, but you got to picture this. This guy is drawing large crowds of people Causing a scene about 20 miles outside of town. When was the last time you walked 20 miles? Right, you're like, why would I do that? I got a car. I know, no plane, cl- no cars, no planes, and no trains. I don't think you take a plane for 20 miles, by the way. I just thought about that. But anyways, 20 miles. So what are they doing? Walking, riding donkeys. Picture this: it's a day trip. If you're going out to see or hear John, Mark says everybody went. He said everybody went out here. I think he's exaggerating. So we're gonna say a lot of people went out here. You got these crowds of people, these caravan of people going into the wilderness and it takes about a day trip. And so if you're walking 20 miles and it takes a day trip, chances are you're gonna miss the speaking for that day. So if you miss the speaking and you went all the way out there, what are you gonna do? Right, you're gonna sleep. How many hotels are in the middle of the wilderness? None. Yes, what we're describing is a festival. That's what's going on here. John, there's a festival in the middle of the desert, and this crazy man, wild-looking man, has started it preaching about this kingdom of God. I bet you they had food donkeys. Entrepreneurs are out there starting new businesses that are like, hey, Come taste what John eats, and they got locusts dipped in honey, and people didn't want that, so they probably had Oreo cakes and fried donuts. It's like, we forget these are real people. This is a real thing. This is a festival. This is causing a scene. People from all over coming out here, like, what is going on? This is a ruckus. And what's he doing? He's preaching. Repent. Turn. God is doing something. And here's what happens when he was preaching. this verse 6. And people... Next slide. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. I don't know if he made them come up to the mic with the PA system that they had, and he was like, all right, tell us what you've done wrong, and then I'll baptize you. Wouldn't that be a crazy... Nobody would want to get baptized then, would they? But it's something about they repented, which is this confession of sins. They identified that they were sinners. They needed a turn, and then he would baptize them in the river. This is what was happening, and this is the formula that we see Jesus put his public stamp of approval on and tells us to do the same. And why, again, I cannot stress this enough, he is calling all the religious people to repent. You see, back then, baptism wasn't a new thing. It was a thing. It was something they did, but not for the Jews. The Jews didn't need to be baptized because they were circumcised. And so that was the sign of their covenant. We don't need that. Baptism, what they know, is for the Gentiles who were turning, becoming uh, becoming Jews, they would wash them, they would cleanse them through this purification rite of baptism. Very different than what we do. But John is telling all the religious Jews, he's treating them like Gentiles. Like pagan Gentiles, the religious class. He's like, y'all don't know what you're talking about. God's moving, God's doing something great, and you need to be baptized For the forgiveness of your sins. And he's causing such a scene. So many people are going out there. All the denominational leaders, all the religious leaders, like, look, what's happening? What is going on? We gotta see what's happening. Verse 7, the first part of it says this: It says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, those are the denomination leaders, coming to watch him baptize. So Pharisees were the religious leaders who separated themselves from anything non-Jewish. Guys, these are going to be the people who are always up against Jesus, but you have to understand something for our context. These are the people who love the Bible. These are the people who love to sing. These are the people who are in church or temple, synagogues, every single week. So if you've been at church for any amount of time, you need to identify yourself here. These are the people who thought God, so they knew their Bible so well, the Pharisees thought, okay, we see over and over this pattern of people not doing the wrong thing and God's wrath coming down on us. And they had this great idea. How about we stop doing the wrong thing? And so then they tried to do the right thing so well. They tried to keep the tradition so well that they had their Bibles and they had other traditions on top of it to make sure they did things so well. They became legalistic, that this is the way it has to be done. It can't be changed. This is the right way. And all of their motives, this is important, all of their motives were so they could do the right thing for, for God because they knew how he treated when you do the wrong thing. So they tried to do the right thing so well, they forgot that the thing's about God, not about the thing. And they became very legalistic and very ritualistic. And the, 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 the things that were supposed to help them came, become close to God were the things they started to worship and idolize. Do we do that today? We'll save that for another sermon, won't we? So we have the Pharisees. That's who they were. And then we have, they were, excuse me, they were the, church, the tradition guardians. And they just thought their faithfulness would make God move and protect them. And then we have the Sadducees. We don't know as much as about them. A lot of their records were destroyed, but they were a smaller group from the upper class that were more concerned with the political matters. So these two people, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were both Jews. They are like denominations in the Christian faith. They believed a bit, little bit differently, but both were under the umbrella of Judaism. They didn't really get along until it came to somebody else who's teaching something new. So they come to watch John. Like, what's this guy doing? Who said he could do this? John knows him. John sees him. Check this out. This is why I love John. Continue. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed. Who warns you to flee the coming wrath? So there's a festival going on. The well to do people of society come out. And John's comments to them was to call, I mean, his great idea was to call them out in front of everybody else and call them snakes who come from snakes. You snakes who produce snakes as offspring, you vipers, who warned you? I mean, I've had some good ideas. I've never had them this good. This is pretty good. The imagery is snakes wiggling away from fire. It's like, who told you to wiggle away from what's going on? But he's not done. Who warns you? He says, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. He's saying your life should reflect what you believe. And he's calling for life change. Not business as usual, not religion as usual, not just doing the same things over and over and over trying to win God's approval. It's no, like, no, no, life change. Something needs to happen. Something needs to transform. Life change is what we should see. Prove by the way you live that God is moving. Verse nine, he says, don't say, don't say to each other, we're safe. We're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. I like this guy. I'm telling you, I like him. I get John. He's saying, listen, you cannot claim your heritage. And they're Jews. They have the right last names. They're from the right line. They go to temple. And he's saying, all that stuff you do doesn't impress God. You're like, but Wait. You mean I don't get a star by name going to church on Sundays? He says, nope. Like, that doesn't earn, you can't earn your way into this thing. He can make people from stones. You see, they would claim their heritage. They would claim their traditions. They thought because of who their grandma was, who their grandpa was, their grandma gave them the land that the place sits on now. Y'all ever heard stuff like that? I know you have. He's like, that means nothing. Nothing. God can do what he wants. He's God. Like, you're not impressing God. He says the only thing that matters is you repenting, turning from, and turning towards God. And here's what's important about this. Because we see it in front of all of, the, all of the Gospels. Like John was this important person. But this is important because it's the same message Jesus is going to preach over and over again. I used to think, again, when I first started really getting in my Bible, I was like, man, this guy, John, he's rough. I like Jesus. He's about love. That's what we say, right? Jesus is just love. I think of a 60s hippie is how most people think of Jesus. But then you read Jesus, and he sounds a whole lot like John. You just got to read the whole thing. This is the message. Repent and turn because of the kingdom. And John's point to this religious leaders is you can't point to your heritage to think that makes you okay with God. It's not about that. It's about your personal repentance. And he's saying there's a lot at stake if they don't. He's not done. Verse 10. He's saying, even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of trees. You got a mountain man looking like a wilderness man, so he uses this kind of illustration. He's saying the axe, the axe head is ready to cut down the roots like God is ready to chop it down, folks. This is the picture. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. So the kingdom has come. God's reign is here. Judgment is about to happen. And if you have not experienced life change, you say, what well, life change? What's well, something about producing fruit. You're going to see this theme over and over. Stay with us. About you have to do something. You should be doing something. So not only should life change be happening in you, but if you've gotten to the point where you're like, Brian, I got everything figured out. No more sin? Nothing. Like, I'm good. Well, then you should be helping other people experience life change. In fact, I'm going to give you a break. Even if you haven't come to that place of perfection, you still should be helping other people change. This is what fruit is. This is about helping other people. This is this idea of discipleship. We're going to find out a whole lot more about that as we move forward. But if something doesn't produce good fruit, well, what do you do with a barren tree that's just taking up space? What do you do with it? Not one of the oaks. I'm not talking about those, okay? We leave those up no matter what. Not an oak and evidently pine trees. We keep those too. I can't, we'll talk about it every day. But what do you do with the tree that doesn't produce fruit? What do you do with it? Chop it down. You throw it away. Right. Because it's good for what? Just kindling in a bonfire. You're like, wait, is he talking about people? Listen, Says what it says. I don't know what it exactly means, and I don't want to find out. I'm just going to be honest. Verse 11. He says, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming as greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with. Fire. So John's saying, look, I'm not this Messiah. I'm not the one you think I am. He's coming. I'm getting you ready for him. And he's going to baptize you with something much different. He's greater. where so we have the Holy Spirit who's going to cleanse us and purge us and get rid of things. We'll discover more about that as we move forward. Verse 12, he gives us another judgment. He says, he is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gather the wheat into his barn, but burn the chaff with never-ending fire. And so the process of separating the grain, and most of you know this, right? You separate the wheat from the outer shell. The, the part the, the part that's not good, the part that's useless, the non-grain part just gets burnt up. It's useless. It's pointless. So he gives us this imagery of a tree that's not useful, that doesn't produce fruit, is useless, throws that away. He gives this idea of the imagery of the, of the Messiah coming, the king coming, to separate the good from the ones who is worthless. And they're both thrown into this type of fire. You're like, Brian, is that literal fire? I, do you want to find out really? Is that what you get from this? I would get the judgment part. Like, I don't want to know what that means exactly. Like, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and stay away from that because he tells us how. And we forget that when we hear these passages. It's not just doom and gloom. It's like, hey, folks, there's something happening. Kind of like when we know a cat fives off the shore and someone's warning. us, like, hey, man, it's coming. By the way, anything above a one, this Virginia boy is leaving. I'm just letting you know. Those of you from here were like, we're good. I am not. But when it snows, I'm going to laugh at you because I can drive in it. One day I'm going to get my chance to laugh. One day. Just not right now. But John's just warning. He's not trying to be mean. He's not trying to be cruel. He's not trying to just say, hey, here's doom and gloom. He's like, look, something's coming. It's coming. Turn to God. Repent. Turn from, he's made a way. Like it doesn't have to be this way. You can, you can accept God's grace here. Like that's what's being offered. Like you can accept God's grace the forgiveness of your sins and be baptized. And what happens next shocks all of us, the readers, the people there, you and me. Next verse, verse 13. Says, then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, it should be done for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agrees to baptize him. Now the truth is we don't really know why Jesus was baptized by John. It's mysterious. It causes us to pause. It causes us to lean in and really think about what's going on here. Because we know Jesus wasn't a sinner. We know he's not getting baptized for the forgiveness of his sins. He's not confessing them. So that can't be going on. But there's so much symbolism here. We need to lean in and just think about it for a minute. First, we see this idea of this baptism in the Jordan. We know it's something to do with the water. And it's pointing to this idea of Jesus being greater than Moses. You see, remember Matthew, when we ended, Matthew said, yeah, Jesus went to Egypt. you remember that? He went to Egypt, and then he came out of Egypt. Now he's coming out of Egypt, and now he's going through what? Water. And after he goes through the water, guess where he's going to be led to next week? The desert. Whose story does that sound like? Israel coming out of Egypt, going through the Red Sea, being in the wilderness. Jesus is there for 40 days. They're there for 40 years The symbolism is mind-blowing. Like, we know this isn't a coincidence. He's Jewish. He's pointing to, hey, remember that stuff that happened back then? Watch this. Jesus is doing it. He's fulfilling it. In fact, he's going to do it perfectly. And then after we see them in the wilderness, what kind of laws get given? Remember the Ten Commandments given in the the desert? In chapter 5, we're going to see Jesus sitting on the mountaintop, start telling us what his commands are. So this this idea of somebody greater than the great Moses is here. But we also know that prophets anointed kings, just like Samuel anointed David. And we see this anointing of Jesus almost as the installation as the king through the baptism of Jesus. We also know that Jesus identifies with sinners on the cross, the one who knew no sin took upon our sin on the cross. In the same way, it says Jesus is identifying with us in baptism, that he is being baptized to show that we need to be baptized because we know it's at least, if nothing else, a picture of baptism for us. Because at the end of the book, we're going to see Jesus. I don't want to ruin it for you, but it's been around for a while. You should have read it. At the end of the book, Jesus is going to command all of his followers to go baptize more people. And guess what the only picture of baptism we have is? This one. So to them, it wouldn't have been like, what, we want to, what's baptism? We don't know. They'd be like, oh, you told us at the beginning what baptism looks like about where people went out, they repented, forgiveness of their sins, and then they were dunked in the water. Jesus is going to tell them to do it, in fact, the same way that Jesus has done it. So for whatever reason, we may discover on the baptism of Jesus, what is very clear is this idea of us needing to be baptized too, because he tells us we need to be baptized. This is the picture we have of baptism. This is why John was doing this. This is why Jesus tells us. And this all that God requires, I don't know what that means. All that God requires, but you can figure that out. All I know is it means something, and I would lean in and pay attention to that. This idea of the requirements and the need to listen to God. Then it says this in verse 16 and 17. It says, after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water... The heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. Here we see this anointing of the Spirit, right? Like kings were anointed, we see this anointing from God. And a voice from heaven saying, this is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. So we see this, this, it's confirming this prophetic announcement. John's out there being the prophet saying, someone's coming, you need to turn and repent. Then the one comes, then he gets baptized. Then we see the spirit come, we see the anointing the public that God's speaking, this is my son affirming everything that's going on. And what's pretty nifty is in this, we see the Father speaking. We see the Son being baptized. We just see the Spirit coming down and descending. So we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Trinity is present here, which while later we will see Jesus tell us to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. I tell you what, the Bible makes sense, doesn't it? I hope things are starting to click. You're like, wow, you mean all this goes together? Yup. It's like an amazing book. You should check it out sometime. If you don't have a copy, I'll get you one. But see, even Jesus is obedient to the Father. The Messianic story, the the King is coming. He's been anointed. His public ministry is about to start, but we'll get into that more next week. There's just one thing I want us to take away from this chapter, then we'll be done. And I hope it sticks with you because it really stood out to me. My question for you is this. Are you willing to be weird for Jesus? Are you? Are you willing to be bold for Jesus? John the Baptist, to everyone around him, was weird in so many ways, folks. What he said, what he wore, what he ate, where he lived, and what he did. He's called the baptizer because it was not normal. It was a nickname. It just stuck with him. Some of the nicknames we end up getting in life, we don't want anybody else to know, do we? We're like, that ended a long time ago. We're not going to talk about that. But this is how he's identified as the baptizer. It's his nickname. And while God has not called all of us to be prophets, we can thank him for that. He has called us all to be his disciples. We'll talk about that again all throughout this book. It'll unfold in in a couple of weeks. But it means that we are called to follow him, to be like him. And if he's called all of us to be like Jesus, that absolutely means that all of us are called to live a countercultural life. You see, John didn't follow the crowds, but the crowds followed him. Because he was willing to step up and step out on faith and be a little weird for Jesus. And for you, if you're going to be a faithful follower of Jesus, you're going to have to be a little weird to the people around you. You see, fitting in is not for the faithful follower of Jesus. You're just not going to fit in. You're not going to get along with everybody. You're going to live a little bit differently. It's going to be a little bit uncomfortable. You see, it's going to be weird To not hang out in certain places with certain friends, doing certain things, and not do all that stuff that you know your mom and daddy wouldn't want you to do anyways? It's gonna be a little bit weird saying no to your friends in that moment, but that's okay. It'll be a little bit weird to set up boundaries in your relationships with your friendships. Quite frankly, in your sex life, if you're gonna be a follower of Jesus, it's gonna be a little bit weird. People aren't gonna understand, but that's what it means to be a Jesus follower. It'll be weird to prioritize your time, talents, and treasures for the things of God rather than the things of the world. It's going to be a little bit weird. You're going to have to be ready to have conversations with your kids and your family. Like, hey, we're going to miss that opportunity because of this. We're like, we're, we're, we're not going to be able to do that because we're Jesus followers. I know, I know what the world says. I, I, I know. But I trust that God has greater and better things in store. Like, I believe that, and I hope you do too. Come on. Like, it'll be a little bit weird saying that kind of stuff to people. But that's what Jesus followers are called to. It'll be weird to prioritize your spouse over your job. I mean, there's so many relationships broken because of workaholics, people just not focusing on their family. That's not what a Jesus follower is called to. It'll be weird to tell your job, I'm sorry, I can't do it. i got to be with my family. i got to be with my wife. They won't understand it. That's okay. You do. It's going to be a little bit weird being a Jesus follower. It's a little bit weird when you start living on mission for Jesus, being bold to tell people about Him, inviting people to the church, sharing the message of hope about Jesus. Like it's it's weird to start doing that if you've never done it. It's uncomfortable. But if your life has been changed by the grace of God, then why in the world wouldn't you want other people to experience that as well? It's okay. It'll be a little bit weird, a little uncomfortable. We've all been there. It'll be weird, right? The examples are endless, but it'll be weird not to engage in that office gossip, but to walk away. Like, "Mm, I don't want to do that. Being a Jesus follower is a little bit weird, but it's okay. Are you willing to be weird for Jesus? You see, John shows us that being a Jesus follower, a God follower, is counterculture. Fitting in is not for the faithful follower of Jesus. And what blows my mind, we're almost done, but what blows my mind the most about this section of Scripture is not only will not a faithful follower of Jesus, they not only will not fit along with the culture, but they won't fit in with the religious establishment of the day. That cannot be lost on you because it's going to be a common theme. I'm not picking on traditions. I'm not picking on you and what you like. It doesn't matter to me. I'm good with it. I'm just telling you people missed Jesus Christ because they were so caught up in what they thought was correct. And I don't want you to do that. It breaks my heart to see that because this is what the Bible tells us. This is the story. If you grew up in church or the South or a good Catholic family, that should cover everybody on the East Coast. You need to lean in because John is warning the Jews, God's chosen people, they cannot point to their heritage and all their religious traditions. That will not save them. It will not work. And then tells us that we cannot point to our heritage, our traditions, and all our church attendance, and all the time we serve. Like, that's not the point. We must be able to point, and you must be able to point to the life change that's happened through the grace of God. You should be able to prove by the way you live because this is who I once was and this is who I am now. I've experienced God's grace. I am now a new man. I have been born again. There's a whole bunch of words the Bible uses to describe the same event of God coming and residing in your life. That comes from repentance. comes from turning towards him. And all that religious stuff, folks, it won't work. But the salvation found in Jesus Christ absolutely will work because grace is the point. That's everything. That's what it's about. It's about the grace of God. And that sounds weird, right? What's even weirder is what he tells you to do next. What happens after you get saved? What are you supposed to do? It's a guy's last name. What was it? Baptized, right? He's like, that's a little weird. I know. We've already identified. It's a little bit weird, but that's the calling. That's the next step of faith. And this isn't infant baptism, guys. We can talk about why that's wrong a different day. This is a repentance. And this is... uh, I have publicly confessing that Jesus Christ is my Lord. Folks, if Jesus did it, the one who knew no sin, he calls us to do the same. And so my question for you, wherever you're out, are you ready to be a little weird for Jesus? Because fitting in is not for the faithful follower of Jesus. It's going to be uncomfortable, but it's going to be worth it. Because if you want to experience an abundant life in Jesus Christ, if you want a healthy marriage, if you want purpose and meaning in your life, if you want to experience a peace that surpasses all understanding, if you want to serve God faithfully, if you are looking forward to the day that you're going to stand in front of God and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant, then it's going to take getting a bit weird. That's okay. Join the crowd, the club. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love and your grace. Father, we are reminded today of the seriousness of repenting and turning towards you. While those who heard the message of John the Baptist didn't know exactly what that meant or what it looks like, we know, Father, that turning to you is turning to Jesus, our King, Lord, who saves us. Father, we thank you for your salvation. We're able to confess our sins to you And you are faithful to forgive us because of what Jesus has done. So, Father, in light of your grace, in light of our salvation, we ask you to give us the boldness to be weird. To do things differently. To live counterculturally, To live on mission for you. Father, help us care more about your approval and your mission than our comfort and us fitting in with the people around us. Father, help us be faithful followers of Jesus. In his name we pray.